Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This town has been named Sussex's epicentre for paranormal activity and has been witness to spirits, UFOs and has connections to the devil. But why is it such a hotspot? Welcome back to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding, and this week it's all about the town of Chanctonbury in England. Now let's kick things off with this week's fact or fiction. In 2011, a report said 15% of Britons said that they had seen a ghost. Are you one of them? Is this fact or fiction? What do you think? Find out at the end of the programme. So why am I looking at Chanctonbury today and where and what is it? Well, Chanctonbury is located on the South Downs in the county of West Sussex, and it's most well known for the Chanctonbury Ring, which is a prehistoric hill fort and has been used for over 2,000 years. The purpose of this structure is unknown, but could have filled a variety of roles, from a defensive position, a cattle enclosure or a religious shrine, and we'll be looking at this one further later. Archaeologists have discovered finds such as a polished flint axe, an arrowhead, some early Bronze Age pottery and a sword hilt fragment. After being used for centuries, it was abandoned for around 500 years before being reoccupied during the Roman period. Two Roman British temples were built in the fort's interior, one of which they believe may have been dedicated to a boar cult. Again, the fort lay abandoned after this until an 18th century landowner decided to plant a ring of beech trees around the perimeter to make the site look prettier. This was a famous landmark until the Great Storm of 1987, and the replanting of the trees over the years has allowed archaeologists to carry out a series of excavations that have revealed the history of the site. So that's the fort's history in a nutshell. But now let's go back to the hypothesis that this is a religious shrine. Local legend says that the ring was created by the devil and you can summon him here. It's said that if you run around the ring of trees seven times anti-clockwise, then the devil will offer the summoner, wait for it, wait, a bowl of soup in exchange for their soul. There's no specification on what type of soup is offered, though. And this story is widely known orally, with some variations where the devil offers porridge or milk instead of soup. And the first known appearance in print comes from Arthur Beckett's 1909 book, The Spirit of the Downs. But it's unknown how long this story has been told orally. Now, 
I had to ask myself this question. Would I run around the ring seven times for the devil to give me a bowl of soup? Um, no, I wouldn't even run around the ring. Why take the chance of incurring a meeting with the Lord of Darkness? I mean, I find it bizarre that anyone would want to do this. I mean, the likelihood that the devil would pop up anyway is really rather ludicrous. But I'm a wuss and I wouldn't want to take a chance, would you? I mean, really, would you? Mind you, if the soup was a spicy veg soup, I might be tempted. Oh, and if he threw in a large bottle of red wine and perhaps some brie. That would be nice. I could get the Lord of Darkness to do my big shop, couldn't I, thinking about it? So would you take a chance in summoning Beelzebub? And if you aren't feeling up to the seven laps, it's said if you walk around three, you can walk, if you walk around three times, you'll be rewarded with the spirit of a woman on a white horse. Now that's more like it, though what you do with them both is beyond me. Frank Williams wrote in Sussex Notes and Queries in 1994, he states the story derives from ancient pagan worship. And there was an earlier pagan site on the land. Well, this would include a ritual dance ceremony followed by a sacrificial feast. Another fun fact is the ring is claimed to increase fertility in women for those who sleep underneath the trees for one night. But beware if you do decide to take a rest in the ring. In 2013, Robert McFarlane, author of The Old Ways, A Journey on Foot, spent the night on Chanctonbury Ring, but was woken by unearthly screaming at 2am. The ring is a site that young people have dared to visit late at night to scare each other silly, and there have been tales of phantom horses, fairies, an old bearded man, a druid searching for lost treasure, a Saxon killed at Hastings, and there have been UFO sightings galore. In 1968, the Sussex Sky Watchers began an all-night vigil at Chanctonbury. Most of the night passed without any incident or alarm. But in the early hours of Sunday morning, one member of the group who was walking the circle underneath the trees, who suddenly, out of nowhere, lost the use of his arms and legs. The team member fell to the ground screaming for help. The other members heard and rushed straight over to help, but found they also lost the use of their arms and legs. As more members went to help, more members were stuck in the same inanimate position. And this ordeal lasted around five minutes, and then they all recovered with no apparent after-effects. How totally and utterly bizarre. Now, it's easy for sceptics to say that this could have been mass hysteria, but I've seen something similar with my own eyes when we broadcast a live Most Haunted from Pendle Hill, and I'll never forget seeing one crew member fall to the floor or have to be taken out of a little house in Pendle Hill. And they all complained that they felt that they were being strangled, that their Adam's apples were being pushed in, and some of them actually had marks around their neck as if a, a rope had been there. Was it mass hysteria? No, I definitely believe that it was paranormal. And it's not just the paranormal that seemed to gather in Chanctonbury. There have also been reports of UFOs. In 1974, something out of this world happened. The Ghost and Psychic Investigation Group was formed in this year. And on the 24th of August 1974, as part of their first investigation, they decided to spend the night on Chanctonbury Ring. There were four members of the group, including a Charles Walker and Mr Lincoln. At 11pm, Mr Lincoln was walking through the centre of the ring with the others when he was lifted several feet off the ground. The group reported he remained suspended in mid-air for several seconds, although at the time it seemed like hours. 
During this, he was crying out, no more, no more, and was obviously in some considerable pain. He then dropped to the ground, landing heavily on his back. He was very shaken by his experience, as we all were, but unlike the rest of us, Mr. Lincoln refused to visit the site for further studies. Could Mr. Lincoln have been lifted by a spirit, or was this extraterrestrial? And this isn't all. In 2005, Jerry Wright and his family were walking on the ring and captured an unidentified object in the sky. And I'm looking at some photographs now, um, and there's a lovely black and white photograph. It's obviously winter time, and there is um, a silver object just flying over or it's hovering over the top of the trees. Um, it's not an aeroplane. It's not a helicopter. It's definitely a UFO. Jerry said, my son took this photo with his digital camera at Chanctonbury Ring last Sunday lunchtime. None of us present had noticed anything strange at the time and it wasn't until my son downloaded the pictures from his camera that he noticed the strange object. I thought that it may be a drop of water on the lens, but photos he took before and after show nothing similar and that's the key. If you've got you know, seconds before and seconds after, and there's nothing there. The same with ghost photographs. That to me is absolutely fascinating when something just appears for a split second and then it's gone. Jerry continues, another photo taken half an hour later by my daughter on her camera seems to show a glowing white object above the ring, but it's a lot less convincing than this one. He has checked all his other photos, including some taken about a minute before the one with the object, and has found nothing else odd. This is the photo taken by one of my daughters showing a small bright object over the ring, he says, but I don't think that it's very convincing uh, as a UFO. However, none of her other pictures show it, so I don't think that it's anything on the lens. The weather at the time was rapidly changing between bright sunshine and grey overcast with the occasional flurry of snow. Um, and I'm looking at this photograph now. This is the one that uh, was taken by Jerry's daughter. Uh, there's an, uh, an open gateway, uh, a green field, and in the distance over the trees, there is what could have been, like he says, was it a drop of water on the lens? But no, it's it just, it's, it's a tiny silver object. Um, it's so far away, though, it's difficult to say what it could be, but it's definitely um, unidentified. I haven't a clue, but it's. I love these photographs. Absolutely fantastic. Um, another experience comes back uh, in 1972. A man named Mr. Simpson from Worthing was out with two friends walking along a muddy track towards Chanctonbury when they saw what they thought were flames in the distance. And it was as if they were looking at a bonfire amongst the trees at the top of this hill. And as they got closer, it appeared that it wasn't a bonfire at all. What they saw was a UFO hovering above the trees. The top was illuminated by a blue light and it's reported there were four small windows in the side of the object. The UFO floated around the trees and when it reached the outskirts, it hovered in place, then shot up into the sky and was lost from sight. This happened on bonfire night, so the trio decided not to tell anyone about their encounter until much later. I definitely think, for me, the Chanctonbury ring is, it's almost like a beacon. Um, 
there's lots of these places around the world that seem to attract UFO attention. Um, why that is? No idea. Were these um, rings, um, stone rings, uh, rings of trees, whatever they were in the past, were they placed there by ancient aliens? Let's just take that as a theory, a place to uh, to come back to, um, almost like a landing port, really. Um, there's so many different theories to this, but there's definitely something going on here. Um, and now, I've never been to Chanctonbury. I'd love to go, but I have been to the Avery Stones in Wiltshire. We filmed an episode for Most Haunted, and I have to say, that place, if you've never been, you need to go. It's magical. Standing in the dark in the middle of the night, and I was stood with all these majestic, huge stones around me. It just took my breath away. Um, and they're massive. The, the, the stone circles at Avery, it's just massive. It goes on for, for ages. And you could feel some kind of pulsating energy. You really could feel it. And what it was, I couldn't say, but I knew that something special was going on, a force, some kind of energy was surrounding us. Now, UFOs have been spotted here at Avebury, as well as strange lights and ghostly, misty figures. And these rings, these stone circles, as I say, they were put there for a purpose. I just wonder, like millions, millions of us all over the world, what that purpose was for. This week's story comes from our listener, Benjamin, in South Wales, and he records some of his experiences. One was from a ghost hunt at the Skirid Inn, which I know very well and is really haunted and fantastic. Uh, he's had uh, other UFO experiences. He's from Newport and has had a ton of UFO activity. Um, and there was a famous case that only happened a few years ago with South Wales Gwent Police, and they were chasing a UFO in a police helicopter. Hi Yvette, um, this is Benjamin um, from Newport in South Wales. Um, big, big fan of Most Haunted Dolls, have been. Uh, so I was super excited when you uh, had your, this podcast. Um, yeah, I've I've had a lot of experiences, um, paranormal, things I can't explain. And I've seen things, heard things, and but I absolutely love it all. Um, and I've had quite a few experiences, so I'll, I'll try not to waffle on a bit too much. But um yeah, things that I think you might be interested in. Uh, we did, uh, me and my auntie and my uncle did a, a ghost walk um, at Skirredin in Abergavenny uh, back, I think it was October 2022. And it was only an hour walk, but um, they took us to the graveyard where um, Fanny, um, who was the old landlady, um, where she was buried and stuff. And we did a walk and we didn't experience that much, a few like noises and a few shadows and that was it. But we then decided to want to do the um, actual ghost hunt itself, which was like from 8pm to 2am at Skirredin. So they took us back to the cemetery, which was, I think we did it a few minutes later, this was. And it was absolutely incredible. And this split is into two groups. Um, but I purposely went with another team. So my auntie and uncle went on there, went with the people I went on my own because I wanted to, you know, perhaps other experiences and then we can come together to see what happened to you rather than be together oh yeah so it was conscious decision and it was absolutely incredible um from literally it was from the first moment we, we put into a room and stuff and it we heard dragon above us and yet there was no attic there's no floor in the attic um and then we did with a i did my first ouija ball which i would never ever do before um because it just the thought of it just terrifies me but in a controlled environment, it was it was incredible. 
Um, and then we also did um, like a seance type of thing. And I can remember this girl who was um, who was in my group, and she had a pon- ponytail, but it was it was I was down. And I can remember looking up, and and in her face was this aged woman who had really wiry hair. And the best way to describe it is um, like Edward Scissorhands or the um, oh, the guy in Hocus Pocus when they raise him from the dead. That wiry hair, and it was this woman was staring at me. Um, it was only when I was looking through the light. Um, it was really strange. And then I felt like a, a cat in between my legs. And then I did actually then see like. Um, half of a cat, but like jump um, through a door. It was just really strange, um, and it was just really strange experiences. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And yeah, we we're gonna do more ghost since because um, we just love them. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've just I've always seemed to attract the paranormal, and no matter where I go, um, and even I've I've seen a few UFOs. Um, and Newport um, is a bit of a hotspot UFOs. Um, I think quite famously was that police helicopter, I think Gwent Police or South Wales Police, and they were um, following a UFO a couple of years ago. But I can remember me and my mother, um, back in 2010, we um, were waiting outside uh, for my auntie who was coming home from a party, um, a taxi, and where I lived, they turned the lights off after a certain time, at 9, 10 o'clock, they turned the lights off. Um, so we thought we'd go to the back garden and we can, we'll wait for her. And it was a really clear, clear night, stars, the moon, it was, everything was all clear. And we just happened to be looking at me and my mother. And we saw two objects in sky that looked like mint imperials. That's the best way, because they weren't circular, like perfectly circular, more like an oval. It was strange. And one was bigger than the other. And they were white, almost like glowing almost. And they were massive, I'd say 10 times bigger than when you look at the moon from, from how we see it, it was 10 times bigger than that. And one was following, the one was almost attached to the other, but it wasn't, it was really hard to describe. Um, and there was no sound. It was, they've literally just kind of like drifted over us and, were, and um, there was no trail. It was just, it was just that. So um, my mother, my mother, who's a fantastic drawer, drew them. And I kind of reached out to, um, the UFO Research Society, I've kind of reached out to the Ministry of Defence, kind of like to say, you know, this, it wasn't a plane, it wasn't a helicopter, it wasn't a satellite. Um, we always try to, try and just, you know, try and work out what it could be. Um, anyway, um, and then the following few days got a bit weird after that. Um, my kitchen locks open onto a footbridge outside of the house, um, and it, it's, so cars and people can drive over it. And I can remember it was, it was raining really heavily a few days afterwards, and there was a man um, in a long coat and like a 1940s, 1950s hat. Um, and I remember it was pouring down with rain, and we saw that. Um, and it was in here, he was just like staring at, at me, but if, I'd say he must have been about 40, 50 metres away. And I can remember him standing, I can see him now actually now, and this is, this is again like, 13 years ago this was and I remember yeah him staying and I remember I was, I was studying law at the time in college and the college wasn't that far actually from where I lived so I could walk there back in about 15 minutes I'd say each way and I can remember going on lunch break and a black car following me 
but it wasn't a car that I recognised. And I, I love my car, so I would recognise a Mercedes, a BMW, you know, a Lexus. You could tell the difference. But it seemed to be a bit... It was a modern car, a bit of black and black tinted windows. The number plate wasn't British. It didn't look British. Um, it didn't even look European, um, which you can tell through the, through the European the flag. Um, and it followed me all the way, I'd say, from the college to the lunch. And then when I got into Tesco's, which is a massive Tesco's, so you can get lost in quite easily. Um, I could stay there for a bit. And when I come out, the car had gone. Um, and then I'd seen it once and I was walking home. And yeah, um, after that, it just disappeared. So I've never, I've never seen it since in terms of the, that, the, the black car, which, you know, and then do a lot of research. Um, I thought it might be in the men in black, which I thought was a bit silly at first. But how could that be real? But again, maybe it's because my reports that I've sent to the, the MOD and to the British, I think it was the before I was the British um ufo society um uh, yeah maybe someone got hold of something and thought okay we need to scare this person um and again um a few years later i think when i must have been about six, 17 or 8 it was 18 um i was off my nan's house and i was in the back garden and yeah i seen this this object fly through the sky but it was really low i say i mean it was, and for me it looked like a it seems to be a bit of a muffin or like a muffin casing that kind of metal casing the ridges um bit of metal and it was i'd say it must have been it wasn't massive but it was it was noticeable but i'm a bit of spinning as well and this was this was before um drones were kind of becoming a thing so this i don't think drones I think drones have been around for years, but this definitely was not a drone. And there was no sound again. But when I looked at it, it, it I can remember time almost feeling like it stopped or it was just slow. It was really bizarre. Um, and I didn't report that one because I just thought I didn't necessarily want that to happen to me again. The whole being followed by black cars and people coats and hats and yeah, just. So, yes. Um, yeah, and I've just had. I, yeah, weird experiences. Um, and I seem to have, I just seem to, when I go to mediums, they always seem, they always seem to pick up that I have psychic ability. Psychic ability. Um, and I do sometimes hear voices and I do sometimes see things and, you know, not necessarily people for other people, but I mean, just for myself. Yeah, and I, I absolutely love it. And yes, thank you for listening and have a lovely day. Bye. Hi, Benjamin. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. The man, when I heard this, I went, oh, oh, just spoken about this. The man sounds like the hat man. Now, I don't know if you listened, but it was a bonus episode that we did. And we were talking about this mysterious figure uh, and he's named the hat man. Many people have seen what's described as, as a man wearing a long coat, but sort of a trilby or an old fashioned 1940s hat. Could you have seen the hat man? I wonder if the powers that be were keeping an eye on you. You know, you're talking about being followed and uh, it's baffling, isn't it? And a little bit frightening too. Lesson for everybody. Perhaps if you see a UFO, don't let the Ministry of Defence know. Otherwise, it seems you might get a little visit. Keep in touch, Benjamin. And yes, we want more.
Welcome to Mum's the Word, the parenting podcast. Where we answer the questions you want to hear about parenthood. And provide you with real, honest advice for every stage of your parenting journey. Whether you're a parent-to-be, a new mum like me, navigating those sleepless nights. Or a more experienced parent facing the challenges of raising older kids like me. We've got you covered with relatable stories, expert insights and plenty of laughs along the way. So grab your headphones, a cup of coffee or maybe something stronger. And let's get real about parenting. We're not going to be sugarcoating anything from punamis to piles. Nothing is off limits at Mum's The Word. It's a podcast for all the parents out there, our own little club. Mum's The Word. Listen wherever you get your podcast from and hit follow so you don't miss an episode everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Now, staying on the subject of Chanctonbury, we have Robert Wynne Simmons, the original screenwriter of the cult folk horror classic film, blood on Satan's claw. He has his own experiences from Chanctabury as well as across the country and he joins us now. I am so excited. And he's here with me now, but I'm going to carry on just in case you don't know um, about Blood on Satan's Claw. If not, where have you been? Carl, my husband, is desperately chomping at the bit to barge in here and talk 
talk to the lovely Robert. But anyway, Blood on Satan's Claw is widely regarded as part of the unholy trinity of cult classics, which gave birth to, of course, film, the film genre that would become known as um, folk horror, along with The Wicker Man and, uh, oh, wow, that really scary one, Witchfinder General. It found new ways to terrify audiences using elements of superstition and folklore. Now, 50 years after its release, readers can now experience the unearthing of this terror in the film's first official novelization. And it's a compelling and frightening retelling of the fate um, of the um, unfortunate villagers that were sacrificed uh, by their own children uh, as devil worship infiltrated their rural existence. Now, it's written by the film's original screenwriter, Robert Wynne Simmons, getting excited again, and featuring haunting, haunting new illustrations from Richard Wells. It's an atmospheric and defining cult classic in the making. Ah, Welcome to the show, Robert. Absolutely fantastic to have you on. And um, have you always been interested in horror, or, or is it something that you sort of found yourself in because something happened to you? It happened in my dreams when I was very young. I had a lot of nightmares, but it it really was when I had a, a breakdown, effectively a um, burnout when I was twelve after when uh, problems at school uh, that I got out of it by bringing out all the ghosts and all the unpleasant things that I had uh, seen then. And uh, I uh, wrote some short stories in, that I used to, I went to a boarding school and I used to tell it at night after lights out to the, to the other boys. And I bet they you were popular. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I bet they did. He was shaking underneath the sheets. So did you feel that that was like therapy for you as a young boy to get it all out on the page? Or sometimes when I'm writing my books, I actually give myself nightmares writing about the horrible and frightening stuff. I found it was mostly therapy. I found it was great to, to um, relieve myself of these unpleasant thoughts. That I, I was doing a lot of other things at the time, but it just so happened that there was a demand for horror films in 1970, um, which was when Blood on Satan's Claw was written. And I was wrote about 100 letters looking for work, and along came this response on New Year's Day in the morning, in the, on, the, on, the, on the doormat in the morning, um, asking for a horror film script, or actually three horror film scripts. And uh, I immediately thought, well, I'd better seize the opportunity, rang up the people, told them I had the idea, which I didn't have, and they said, well, could I have something <laughs> for them by the following Tuesday? <laughs> So I saw <laughs> panic, panic. <laughs> thumb through these stories that I'd written when I was in my teens and uh, came up with a, a, a sort of a bigger version of what those had been. And the thing that sort of really frightened me was the that what children can do to other children and uh, also the power of the old gods, as it were, that are hidden in the woods. In England, England seems to be full of them. 
Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating how you've hit on hitten, that's not a word, how you hit upon <laughs> um, children. And it's very funny because the amount of people I meet and I'll say, oh, there's ghosts of children in here, they all shudder and go, oh, what is it that makes um, the behaviour of children if they're doing something wrong, like in Blood on Satan's Claw, you know, they're, they're sort of, I don't know, taken in by the witchcraft and so on. They end up sort of executing their parents. It, it, it's bizarre and it's so frightening. Why do you think that is? It's because they're so innocent, apparently, but not so. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Lord of the Flies, if you remember that yes. um, story by William Golding, that, that sort of demonstrates how dreadful they can be when they're left alone and unruly. And uh, yes, I mean, children, we're terrible to other children. You hear about yes. it all the time on the internet yes. and everything. Was your experiences at boarding school, did that, uh, that, because you often hear about, you know, people having a terrible time in boarding school, especially in the sort of, you know, 50s and 60s. Was that part, do you think, of what was going on with you, um, you know, as a, as a young boy? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I was the first, I went to a boarding prep school and that was dreadful. The, um, the boarding school I eventually went to was very productive because they had, it had, um, had a little theatre of its own and, and we formed a film society and all that kind of thing and it was great. <laughs> but the first one I went to, yes, I was attacked by the other boys. I was promoted above my station, I think. Oh, <laughs> and wow. they didn't like it. They were very jealous. <laughs> oh, aren't they, you absolutely right. Children can be incredibly, incredibly cruel. And I, I've had a similar thing happen to me as well. So um, it's very, very painful, isn't it? But you did something amazing with all that pain and what you were going through and you were writing these incredible stories. And then to get that note through the letterbox landing on your doormat, I mean, you must have been in absolute panic. Oh, my God, how am I going to get this done by next Tuesday? And and for it to be so amazing as well. Did you have a lot to do with when it was turned into a film? Did you, did you, were you sort of a bit, were the producers saying to you, no, we need to cut this, we need to cut that? Were you sort of quite compliant or did you argue your case and say, no, 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 this has to stay in? I have to say I took over, really. Um, <laughs> the thing was, they were in such a rush. They had booked the studio for April Fool's Day. Uh, oh, and it was already the beginning of the year. They had to have a film ready to shoot on that day in April. And uh, therefore, you know, there was, it was the, there was so much of a panic in doing this thing. I wrote the first script in three weeks. Um, and then had to revise the whole thing, change the date in which it was set, um, and put three stories into one, which was uh, which was what I wanted. But they wanted three stories originally, but I managed to talk them round. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, yes, and then we got an incredibly good young crowd. Piers Haggard joined as a you know a fresh fresh film director who had not done that much. And he brought with him a whole lot of really good actors. And uh, it was and a wonderful composer and, and the best cameraman you could wish for and, and, and the best editor. It was just extraordinary for such a small-scale production. It all came together. And how wonderful that I know 
you said it was you know sort of started on April Fool's Day. Well, it, it, <laughs> there were no sort of there was nothing awful that went wrong. It seemed that heaven was looking down on you and gave you the best crew, the camera and director and so on, yeah. and all the actors. Tell me, how did it come about? So, so this film, you know, it kicked everything off. It started a genre, and so how has this new release um, of the book come about? Because it's it's fifty years on, and and you know, there's new generations come up. But I mean, I meet a lot of young people that are really, really into horror. They're really into the paranormal, so they're going to love this book. How did it come about? Well, it's just it's longevity. I mean, I, the film lasted, and uh, that's all I can say. I mean, at first it was thought of uh, as, a, as a cheap horror film that would last, you know, as long as it was shown in, in the cinemas and then would die of the mm. death, and nobody thought that it would survive at all. Um, but it has, and it sort of somehow got to people's imagination. Um, I can't really answer why, but I think the really good cast and crew we had on it that, that made a lot it's of made, difference. Yes, makes all the difference, doesn't it? When you have good people around you, I think that energy can come across, can't it, on camera as well. So um, tell me about your ghostly experiences, because I've heard you've had a had a few. Um, yeah, not not more than maybe most people have, but they, mm. uh, I had, there was a, uh, I lived in quite a small house in Cheam, and uh there was a, a sick room, or uh, actually it wasn't a sick room, it was a guest room, really. But my mother had put all these dark wardrobes in there, and I was put there when I was sick. <laughs> and she nice. gave me soup and things. <laughs> but I was isolated. And uh, there I did have did see a, a, a strange apparition of a, of a man in a cloth cap who stood in wow. front of the one one of the wardrobes and wouldn't go away. How many times I closed my eyes and hid myself in the big clothes and that kind of thing, he didn't go. And I often wondered whether he died there or something like that. So that was my first. And then the other thing was a wonderfully good experience of being opposite Nonsuch Park, which was a sort of one of those places that has a magical feel about it. And Henry VIII loved it so much that he demolished an entire village to build a palace there. And it, it, it has that, had that sort of power, a positive power, I felt, um, of awakening ideas in the imagination. Places, I think, matter a lot. They do. And did so did you spend quite a lot of time there? Do you think that helped your creativity? Yeah, it did. And also, you know, when I'd left... Yeah. I mean, I, there was a, a sawmill there. I don't know why the sawmill was particularly significant to me, but the, the, the feeling of these saw, circular saws going round, and they followed me to school, and I, I saw them in my mind. Mm. And it was sort of like they, they brought things alive. It was, it was a strange experience, I say. Not, not such park is a beautiful place. I've never um, been. I, I can't I say go. why. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, an, there's another place that, that you talk about, and forgive me if I uh, mispronounce it, Shanktonbury Ring, is that correct? That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I went to school at Lansing um, in Sussex, um, and uh, there, there it was on the South Downs and there was a ring, Lansing Ring there, but you could walk for 10 miles to Shanktonbury, which was the big ring that you could see for miles around. Mm. It was um, built on an ancient site, 
um, Bronze Age, possibly Stone Age origins, and then Roman temples and things had all been within the ring in their time, and people were dead afraid of it. But I found it a very fascinating place. Mm. And uh, at the age of 17, uh, the owner, a son of the land, Charles Goring, in the, in the 18th century, he, he, he wanted to have uh, a, a whole lot of trees planted there, a whole lot of beech trees. And uh, that made it very special because it was a landmark you could see for miles. Mm. Um, and, uh, it, it, but it was, it was also frightening to go inside. It was very dark inside. And it had that kind of quality of the dark and the beautiful all at once, which was quite something. And does it sort of, did it feel to you almost, sort of a possibly folklore or legend, that there was sort of some sort of devil or, or you know, hell uh, associated with it? You know, if you oh, walked around in a certain, certain way, is, was it you've walked yeah. around it seven times or something, you'd go to hell? Yeah, yeah, you'd meet the devil, he'd come out, he'd pop out from behind a tree and he'd, and he'd say, what, do, you want, do you want some soup? Or do you want some, some porridge? <laughs> whatever, whatever you wanted to eat and, and, and would you mind just giving me your soul in, 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 in return? But <laughs> that, was the, that was the story. But uh, people used to spend nights there and frighten themselves. When I went with my family, none of them would go in. I was the only one that went inside the ring yeah, you're really brave because I don't think I, I don't think I would. And, and you were how old were you when you, when you did this? Uh, well, I was twelve when I went there. When I was twelve, just before I went to the school. The wonderful thing that happened for me was that uh, I heard in my mind the beginning of a symphony, music, exact, uh, a whole march theme, which I later used to create the symphony that it, that it started. But it, it it all came to me there. And although the place was dark, it was a very powerful experience, which I can't explain. So do you, do you, my listening to you and your experiences sounds to me like you are quite open to um, the other side, to spirituality. You sound like you're, you're a very sort of spiritual person because I feel you're quite connected. And when people tell me that like you, you know, you, you, you heard the music in your head. Do you think that came from somewhere? Do you think they were giving that to you? I don't know. People's, I mean, everybody that knew the place, and sadly it's not there anymore, it was all, all the trees were blown away in 1987 oh. in that great hurricane. <sighs> um, there's very little left of what was, what, was the, what was there before. But everybody that went there, I found a, a, a thing just recently by Roger Kipling. Can I read it to you? Of course, it's, yeah. It's quite short. Um, where he went there by car in the early days of the car, in, and it's in a ghost story called They, he put it about children, funnily enough. I found hidden villages where bees, the only things awake, boomed in 80-foot lindens that overhung grey Norman churches, tithe barns larger than their churches and an old smithy that cried out aloud how it had once been the hall of the knights of the temple and as the wooded hills closed about me i i stood up in the car to take the bearings of that great down whose ringed head is a landmark for 50 miles across the low countries 
it was like that. It has that. I, I don't know. It just wow. felt like it was. It was England for me. Yeah, I was absolutely wonderful. I could listen to you all day. You got a lovely voice, and I was there. I was there in the in the moment, um, imagining everything. That's absolutely wonderful. What about um, one of my favourite places is Michelin Priory? Um, and yeah. apparently you have you, you know of this place and you're interested in it and have a story about that? Well, a little story, yes. I mean, I w- lived in Willingdon and in the village there was a, a little um, dark-haired widow, elderly woman, called Mrs Hotblack, who sort great of became name. friendly with, with us. What? Yeah, it's <laughs> a great name. Great name. <laughs> And she became friendly with us, and because I think she, because she was called Molly, and my mother was called Molly, and and there was a, uh, she she wanted me to, she owned a place, called Michelin Priory, and she wanted me to go there to be a guide. Um, I must say I was a bit afraid of the place when I went there, but she took me round it and told me the places that she liked and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, but I got a job at Glyndebourne Opera House moving sh- sh- scene shifting and that is ple- a- appealed to me more and I'm afraid um, Molly Hot Black or Molly Kavanagh as she was in her uh, first name uh, didn't uh, really approve of what I did oh, um, really? but she but she died and you made a program there I think mm. I remember yes and so I looked at it and yes the, the medium you used did describe the journey that she had taken me through the house, a place where she sat and looked out the window and loved to look at the garden and this kind of thing. So it was quite spooky. And I don't know to this day whether he really got that or whether somebody else was, had been given the same conducted tour I had um, to be able to, to, to describe it to him. But it was, uh, yeah. So she was, was really my first ghost person wow. that I'm appearing, appearing as a ghost on your show. That, how, how great is that, though? I knew, I knew her. It, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it's, an, it's a wonderful place, and it is, it's very dear to my heart because it's the very first yeah. place that I ever went and did a, a ghost investigation. I was so frightened, Robert. I can't tell you. I was shaking because I'd never well, done I, this before, and I yeah. thought, what the earth is going on? Well, my, my feeling was I didn't want to be – left to be the last person to lock up if I was doing a guided tour around the place. But Molly Hoplack, she really loved it. She, she was devoted to it. It was very, very sad that she had to give it over to the National Trust eventually. But it's still there and people can go and, and visit it. And it, it, yeah. it absolutely, it's an yeah. absolutely stunning, beautiful property. Now, moving on then, let, let's get to writing. So, of course, I'm, I'm writing fiction books um, and I've been writing for a, a few years now. And um, could you um, give me some tips? Like, um, <laughs> I would write, no, from, from somebody like you, this is an absolute honour to talk to you. So writing about the paranormal and horror, how, what do you think the most important thing is, you know, to sort of get that suspense going? You know, it, is it the use of words? Is it the setting up of the story, the characters and so in the way that you write, how, how, do, you, how do you do it? Because you do it so well. It's fantastic. Well, I do it. I've always seen things in my mind. So and I like things to be very real. If you make something real, if you don't sort of talk about things which are, you know, all hyperbole and that kind of thing, but you actually make it a real ghost and a real, a real feeling. Um, that's what I found. Uh, yeah. Um, has worked best for me uh, that you can actually see it 
And with a film, I found making films that always, you could make almost anything happen. If you could find a reason for any scene that you saw, um, even if it seemed most outlandish, um, you could find a, a real path that would lead you there. And that's that's what I feel a good story has. You know, if you, you want a scene where something really strange and terrible happens, then you can gradually work your way there and it'll seem the most natural thing in the world. That's what I think. I'm actually That's... writing down in bullet point. I'm actually writing down in my what you're saying so I can refer back to it. Oh, it's like a little mini lesson. It's fantastic. So this book is coming out, Blood on Satan's Claw, by the wonderful Robert Wynne Simmons. And it's after come out after 50 years of it first coming on the screens. Please go out and buy it. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be cheeky and I'm going to send you, if I can, a copy and see if you can sign it for my lovely husband. Who's a massive fan? Robert Wynne Simmons, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Now, let's get the answer to this week's fact or fiction. To remind you, it was in 2011, a report came out saying that 15% of Britons said that they had seen a ghost. So, what do you think? Well, the answer is fiction. It's actually a little bit higher than that. In 2011, the report was 25% of Britons said that they had seen a ghost. So are you one of them? If so, we want to hear from you. Come on, get in touch with me uh, and share your stories. Here's the email address. It's contact at paranormalpod.co.uk. We are on WhatsApp and you know how I like to hear your voice. It makes me feel like I'm not on my own, like you're with me. So here's the number 075 we are on Instagram. Here's the handle at Paranormal Activity Pod. And you can see photographs like the UFO one I was describing earlier on. We post all those on our socials. Stay up to date with the newest episodes by giving us a follow. And we'll be back again same time next week. But if you can't wait until then, visit www.paranormalpod.co.uk where you can find options to get episodes a day early. Have a great week. Stay safe. And remember, things aren't always as they seem. 